X-ray. Well, the funny thing was I had something I was going to talk to you about, and I've completely blanked, like at the top of the show. Completely blanked. I just sat there thinking, what the hell was I going to talk about? So I thought, well, let's just get this show on the road. <laughs> <laughs> The Beer Ivana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. You're Jeff Allworth over there in your respective home, socially distant and safe. Indeed I am. <laughs> uh, you write, yeah. you, in that home, you probably write your books, things like The Beer Bible and The Beer Bible Volume, volume 2, and Secrets of the Master Brewers and The Woodmere Way. That's true. And down there in your southern part of our quadrant of the city, you uh, teach, I suppose, remotely. I do uh, actually teach in my house, yes. Yeah. Uh, at, at the Oregon State University, you teach economics. Indeed, so I cool. do. It's nice to join you today, Jeff. And you, Patrick, on this, <laughs> I got to say, a little bit getting gray out there. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was a little bit nicer before, and now it's getting gray. We've had a nice week, but apparently the weekend's a little bit colder and wetter um but wet actually these days is not such a bad thing uh, we're having kind of a big a dry spell yeah we're having a really bad dry spell and i just you know i should i should just enjoy it because you don't know that the fires are going to come but i i sit here and look out at the sunny april uh slash may weather and think oh it's going to burn up but it's actually quite pleasant so i should quit thinking that because who knows you never yeah. know what's going to happen yeah it's not looking so good especially in northern california southern oregon is looking super duper duper dry and uh yeah it could be really bad when fire season comes along but let's have cheery thoughts of yeah right uh, now there's no fires of drenching so. ra- drenching rain and yeah. <laughs> yeah you never know you never know so uh what's new in your neck of the woods what goes on uh, you've never asked that before. I have. I have nothing. I just. My, I have a blank mind. What I have is a zen-like blank mind. When you ask that. Wow. That's that's. How about of, you? That's Let me throw of, it right back at you. What's going interesting in your life? Patrick? Well, all kinds of things. Thanks for asking, Jeff. There you are. <laughs> uh, actually, when what the the crazy thing is that things are sort of returning to normal, and it feels so abnormal, in the sense that my son's back in school, and now he's back in school most of the week. That's weird. Like that just feels jarring. Uh, my wife now leaves for work in the morning. Um, she's a school teacher. Uh, that's weird. I'm still futzing about at home teaching my classes from here because we're still not open for in person. But that's going to change soon, uh, which means I'm back to commuting to to Corvallis. And so what's funny is that this thing has gone on so long that the that the return to normal feels just weird, abnormal. Well, by by return soon, are you actually going to be teaching in class uh, this this year, or not not until the fall? Not well, not till the fall, because I don't I don't uh, uh, you know I don't teach in the summer. Right, exactly. That's what I thought. But I'm just clarifying there. Yeah, but I'm already you know I'm already girding up for it. Uh, actually, there's a big debate about whether they're going to uh, demand uh, students staff be vaccinated. Um, that's a big debate here. The call the California school system, both the UC system and the CSU system, have said they're going to require it and Washington State universities require it and a bunch of the private schools in Oregon so they require it so including our alma mater Lewis and Clark I got yeah. an email about that yes indeed uh, so I think the tide is changing I think they're going to change their tune they already sent a 
they already sent an email out saying, you know that one where we said we're not going to require it? Well, we didn't really necessarily mean that. <laughs> we just meant that like if like if things didn't change, then we probably wouldn't. But if they approve, they give full approval to the, vaccinate, the vaccines and if they're available and blah, blah, blah. So uh, that's interesting. I think it's a good idea. I mean, we require vaccinations for lots of other things. Uh, it's 100% a good idea. We're going to crap out and then we're just going to have this thing dog us for the next year. Yeah. I, I, I have no tolerance for that. I think we just need to get vaccinated and, and be done with this damn thing. Vaccines provide even good coverage for the variants. Uh, you can still get sick, but very, 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 very few people have died. Um, so basically, you know, everybody should be vaccinated. I agree. Everyone should do it for everybody else. Oh, exactly. Cause I want to go back to the damn pubs and if we're not vaccinated and this drags on, it's going to be terrible. So I <laughs> know I tweeted something like that. Something similar. <laughs> like, are you mad at the lockdown? Are you mad that, that uh, restaurants are going to have to close and you feel bad about local restaurants? Well, you, if you want to support them, the best thing to do is get vaccinated and let's get over this thing. I should make a t-shirt that says, get Jeff back to the pubs, get vaccinated. Mm. Yeah. That would motivate most of Oregon. Yeah, I think it would. Jeff, 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 and, Jeff, Jeff in a pub. <laughs> That's where I want to be. Let's jump all the way to like fully back normal, meaning indoors. Mm-hmm. Where, what kinds, what place are you most uh, excited to uh, um, to patronize? You mean like restaurants or pubs or yeah, what kinds of pubs or what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. I just want to be in a pub. I just want to be, I want to sit... I want to be sitting at bars. I love my favorite place is a pub and my favorite place in the pub is the bar. I like to, you know, belly up to the bar, sit down, turn to the person next to me whom I don't know and strike up a conversation. And that is precisely like surgically (laughs) uh, targeted uh, at not happening until we're all back into the swing of things, you know, exactly. That's like the worst thing ever. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's where I want to be. I want to be, I want to be sometimes, you know, on a busy, it's a busy pub, you're sitting at the, the bar and your body, you're physically, your body has to touch the people on either side of you. You're just packed in there. And now that seems like, you know, crazy. Who could possibly, I can never touch another human again, but that's, <laughs> that's where I want to be. I know it does seem really weird. Like the idea of being in a packed, a packed restaurant or pub, everybody unmasked. That's kind of what I meant about the getting back to normal. It's just going to, it's going to feel really weird for a while. It is. It is. It's going to take us some time to start trusting ourselves again, trusting each other. And then I do feel a little bit of guilt just uh, knowing that we're, you know, the United States now is doing fantastically well in terms of vaccinations and, uh, and there's, you know, parts of the world that are doing fantastically terrible. I talked to my buddy in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, who's basically a prisoner in his own apartment because it's just raging there and they've got no vaccines and it's, it's a total disaster. And I know India is even worse. So, right. We know uh, some folks in India and I'm really worried about India. I do feel bad, um, uh, for those. So I hope that we'll start, uh, pushing out vaccine production to other countries, um, particularly in low income countries yeah, so that the whole, because no, this whole thing's not over until really the whole thing is over. <laughs> so we can, we can do a pretty good job in the United States, but it's still going to find its way in if it's everywhere else in the world. So. <sighs> yes. Yeah. And also <laughs> I care about people in the other part of the world too. I just don't yeah. want to see vast swaths of humanity dying. I'm not cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's kind of crazy. Well, last week, uh, speaking of, um, because it was a cool tie-in to the whole technology that brought us the mRNA 
vaccines, uh, we spoke to Nick Harris of Berkeley Labs. And what they're doing is they're bioengineering. Uh, they're doing a similar technique uh, to get yeast itself to make certain compounds, uh, uh, flavor compounds sometimes, compounds that hate that help uh, break down um, uh Oh God! And if I'm going to try, I won't even try the science. But things that'll help uh, uh, hops produce the kind of uh, terpenes that make these great tropical flavors. Things that prevent diacetyl in beer. Uh, pretty amazing technology. That's all basically um, from the same sort of, I guess, general genre of of gene editing. And um, uh, so that was kind of exciting. <laughs> Uh, so that's the latest example of technology's impact on brewing, the newest, latest, like the, really the frontier. And that gave us a thought that uh, there's been a lot of big uh, technological advances in brewing. And so to, this week, we're going to look back at some of those pivotal technologies that changed brewing forever, even uh, working a little beeronomics into the mix. Uh, and we'll do that soon, but we got to turn first to the news. In one of the more remarkable brewery rebrands, Stone Brewing is taking a different tack. Writing in Good Beer Hunting, Kate Bernat reports that Stone plans to, quote, introduce a new, more welcoming version of the brewery. <laughs> I know. This is not a joke. What? With a, <laughs> with, with a portfolio built around a, quote, Baja-inspired lager. What? Buena Vista salt and lime lager. I know. I know. This is a, this I, is your this is a wind up, right? Not, it is not April first. I'm I'm read. This is straight news. Maria Stipp, Stone's new CEO, said that Buena Vesa is part of the goal of quote resetting the tone and manner of the brand, calling the calling the lager uh, the brewery's number one priority. And, and and your surprise says it all. I know. I about fell out of the chair when I read all this stuff. Oh, there's so much to unpack there. I don't even know how to get started. <laughs> First I off, this know. is the this is the brewery that brought you arrogant bastard. The whole the whole brand is is based on not being welcoming, but being uh, arrogant, and <clears> also uh, on big giant hoppy bomb hop bitter bomb IPAs and stuff. Exactly, and criticizing loggers like their whole thing was no sissy loggers or whatever. I could have had a <laughs> phrase and. Uh, I know, I know. So the it's, other thing to unpack is what have the money people gotten in in the positions of the CEO and stuff, and now, and now the marketing's driving the the brewery or what? Well, I think I think a few things are going on. First of all, the sales are way down, uh, so that's a problem. Uh, and I do think that this personality that, you, that we've been talking about comes straight from the founder. Greg Cook, and he is uh, his shtick is looking less and <laughs> looking more and more like toxic masculinity, and less and less like a puckish uh, revolutionary. And I think uh, becoming bigger problem for the brewery as time goes on. So you know, I, my guess is they they needed to move away from that identity of the founder's personality. <laughs> well, but man, well, uh, this a is sinking a sinking ship is sure one way to get rid of the arrogant in the bastard, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> True. They could call it chastened bastard. Ch chasing good guy, making some good drinking lagers. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's quite a come down for old Greg, but um, more power to them, I guess. Yeah, uh, I know. Buena Vesa Salt and Lime Lager doesn't sound wonderful, but 
whatever. Good. Go for it. It San Diego is what after it is. all. Yeah, San that, Diego. That's right. It's probably pretty tasty in when you're It's in just the yeah, weather. it's exactly the, the the most anti-stone beer you could possibly imagine. I know. Number one priority. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, we're having a lot of fun with this, uh, but you know, for all the for all the people who are uh, employed by Stone and and, and uh, trying to make this work, I I salute you. I I do too. Good luck. We'll we we will watch this space. Yeah. All right. The next uh, item is Inferment Magazine. Joe Caird is that right? I don't uh, know. Writes that the spotty availability of pubs in the United Kingdom has caused a number of punters to build pubs in sheds and outbuildings at home. Whether their numbers amount to a trend or not, we can't say, but the photos accompanying the article are lovely. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I yeah, want that, a backyard pub, man. That sounds, by really... the way, that sounds, uh, that sounds so British. Uh, <laughs> it does. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> as, I was in, as I encountered this, I thought, this is the most British story ever. <laughs> Everyone's got a shed. You make a little wee pub out of it, and exactly have the and neighbor they, the neighbors come by. And the photos looked super British too. The little they were like little mini British pubs. They were perfect. <laughs> well, more power to you. But I hope that uh, it doesn't lead to a straying of the existing pubs because uh, they need all the help we can get. It's pretty sad. The the yeah. decimation of the pub culture in the UK is pretty sad. It is, and. Uh, I, but I suspect it'll bounce back. You know, it's hundreds of years old. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think um, you know part of it's just because uh, without any other uh, outlet, you know, the pubs populated Britain at to a density that's just um, choose my words carefully. Uh, at, uh, a remarkable density um, that now that there are lots and lots of things you can do with your time in the world including things like, uh, well, in the COVID time, streaming and, uh, and watching television going, and in non-COVID times, you know, uh, uh, going to movies and plays and concerts and things like that, that uh, perhaps that adjustment was inevitable. Yeah, perhaps so. And uh, I want a backyard pub. Did I mention that? Should, <laughs> should get on that. You do have a nice little shed. Actually, I think I can see a nice little pub in your backyard. I would, I would come and, and patronize your your little your wee your wee pub. You have an even better shed. Your shed is, it's ready to go. Uh, I do, but I'm not building a pub in my shed. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. I'll work on you. <laughs> I, why would I build a shed if you're going to build one? I'll just come to your house. Well, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get on to the main topic. Uh, but before we get on to the main topic, I'm going to use this opportunity to open a beer, I think. Yeah, me too. It's Friday afternoon. It's Friday afternoon. We This has been a, a, a major shift, a major uh, advance in our in our uh, podcasting technology, which is to start podcasting on a Friday afternoon rather than like on a Tuesday morning where drinking a beer seemed like a bad idea and um, not nearly as fun. And if we, if we ever get our studio at X-Ray back... Uh, this could really challenge us. We may really shackle our buzz, so to speak. Yeah, that's true. Although I'll take it. The studio is really nice. <laughs> doing this, doing this in my son's bedroom is not quite uh, has the same uh, look and feel, I suppose. The same uh, feng shui. Yeah, it's true. There is that. But uh, here we are on a Friday afternoon, and I am drinking East Brother uh, Bohemian Pilsner. Uh, nice. Yeah, which is a brewery. That contacted me over a year ago and said, "Hey, can we send you some beer?" And I said, "Sure." And then um, 
they got back and said, ah, we didn't send you any beer, but we're going to send you, this was like about <laughs> nine months ago, we're going to send you some beer. And I said, okay, that's great. And then out of the blue, this beer showed up this week. And I, the Rob Leitner is the owner, one of the two owners there. And, and I sent an email and said, hey, your beer just randomly showed up. <laughs> uh, so I, I have been drinking it. Um, and this one I have not yet had, but um, uh, I've been really impressed so far. These are guys in down there in Richmond in the Bay Area. You know where Richmond is. I do. And East Brother, you know, is named after the lighthouse at the entrance to the San Pablo Bay. Uh, uh, we do know that because we looked it up. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. For- <laughs> Thanks to the Google, I know that. Yes, formerly, we did not know that. <laughs> uh, I was going to act all wise, man. You you outed me. Uh, I'm into radical transparency. Yeah, so how is the, uh, the Bohemian Pills? <clears throat> it's Pilsnery. So I noticed on their website that this is a... a, a uh, JBF award-winning beer, ah. uh, and it is mm, it has that quis- crisp lager-like quality that I really like, and the zesty hoppiness. Uh, it's only five percent, which is perfect. Um, yeah, it's just really, really, really Friday afternoon. Nice. What, what are you drinking? All right. Well, so I'm going to drink something that you passed on to me. So you're going to tell me more about this beer than I know about it. But uh, we're going to be talking about technological advances in beer today through the ages. So we're going to look backwards now. Last pod, we talked to, uh, uh, to Nick about uh, uh, genetically modifying yeast and moving forward in technology. But this one is called pseudo lager. And, and it's from Narrows Brewing. Where is Narrows Brewing? You can figure this out. Don't look at the label. Can you figure it out? It's a, it's a, it's, it's regional. Narrows regional. Are you getting it? Are you getting it? Oh, I don't know. Cascade Locks. Uh, the Tacoma Narrows. Oh, Tacoma Narrows. Another Narrows. Yeah. Ah, so like Gig Harbor or something, or Tacoma? <laughs> it's actually in Tacoma. All right. Uh, so. Uh, uh, this is an uh, is a lager, but uh, you're about to tell me how they brew it. Yeah, this is a fascinating beer. Uh, he sent a couple of these, and I I was I drank one, um, and then I was so interested and thought we should have it on the pod, so I passed that one along to you. It is a quake quake. I've forgotten how to pronounce it properly. Uh, the Norwegian farmhouse beer uh, yeast strain that we talked about. Um, a few pods back. We did? Uh, that, yeah, Norwegian farmhouse beers. Man, you're, you are good. No, no, I, I didn't mean to. I, sorry, I didn't mean that to sound like a question. I meant oh, to sound okay. as, a, as, a, as a confirmation. <laughs> we did. Uh, excellent. I'm glad. I'm really <laughs> sorry, glad you remember sorry, that. Sorry the, the confusion there. Yes, we <laughs> talked about it. And it's it's spelled kvik, but kvik or whatever is the right pronunciation. Right. Uh, these are beer. These are um strains that work very fast and purportedly produce crisp can produce depending on the conditions you brew them with a crisp lager like character in really fast time and and parker rush uh, the brewer there sent me this and uh he made this beer fermentation conditioning time so f- from knockout to packaging in 17 days wow a lager in 17 days, as opposed to something on the order of about 42 uh, that it would normally 
take to make a lager. And you tell me what you think, but I thought, holy moly, this could be this could be a thing. Mm. This. Oh wow! So it, it's made with Ella hops, which mm. does throw things off a bit because they're a little they're a modern uh, New Zealand hop. So. Yeah, it doesn't have that sort of classic uh, noble hop. But it's pretty crisp, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Pretty lot. That, that's what I was going to say. Is that the yeast profiles? Yeah, very crisp. Mm. Uh, yeah, you would not necessarily. Mm. Excuse me, as I take a few, <laughs> a few big steps here, uh, uh, I would not have um, uh, thought twice if you told me this is just a, a, a classic lager. Yeah, uh, except for the hot profile, but otherwise the base beer, yeah, is. Um, yeah, he said that he 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 was a little concerned that it wasn't going to uh, be as lager like as he wanted, so he did not want to use a really classic noble hop this first time because they did obviously put these in a package and he wanted them to be able to sell and people yeah. enjoy them. No, I can totally understand, but I get the sense that if he had put uh, uh, used noble hops, that he would actually get a pretty classic lager profile. Does he think and, so too? Yeah, I think so too. And he's promised uh, to do that and send us some. So mm. we'll try we'll try batch two or some batch down the line and see what it's like. Because I I mean we you asked uh, Nick Harris last week, can you make a yeast that goes faster? Yes. Uh, you know, for as an industrial kind of advantage. And he said, yeah, they're looking into that. Well, this may be a strain that you don't even have to modify. It's just already there uh and i gotta tell you if brewers could make a, a lager that consumers could not distinguish from a lager in 17 days as opposed to 42 days they're gonna make that that's that's like a big deal oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a lot huge, of money huge cost savings yeah. yeah and we should be clear that with the nick stuff he's actually bioengineering yeast this is just a strain of yeast that comes from uh the nordic countries mm-hmm. right <laughs> is it is it norway i can't remember it is uh, norway yeah, yeah it's okay. norway. <laughs> I hedge my bets. <laughs> yeah, that's good. As a good academic, you you go for uh, precision in vagueness. I like it. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, well schooled, uh, and uh, it just happens to be a a, a, a a certain strain of yeast that works in a very particular way. Yeah, mm. it's an interesting beer. This is really it? nice. Yeah, I, I like this a lot. I'm not I'm not 100 uh, uh, overwhelmed by the hop choice, but I understand it. Um, I can't. It's even a hop. I, part of the problem is I'm not really being able to identify the hop uh, flavor profile super clearly because it's a little. It's pretty. I mean, it's modern. It's pretty tropical. I get a lime quality from. Yeah, it. it's more limey than tropical. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. Which is nice. I thought it was pretty nice. You know. You know. It. It, it, it reminds me a lot of that that new uh, Buena Vesa I've heard so much about. <laughs> Oh yeah, I've heard that. Oh, that's that's amazing beer. It's got salt and lime in it. Salt and lime. Yeah, from from that classic <laughs> lager producer down there in San Diego. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that's the other thing too. When you come out with the gate with a brewery, a beer called Arrogant Bastard, and then you have a reset, it does open you up for a little ribbing down the line. Yeah, I know it's just too it's too easy a target. <laughs> Uh, and especially when you back up the arrogant bastard with all the behavior after and becoming so successful and yeah. Indeed. 
Okay. Well, let's get to our main topic then. So this is one uh, a potential new advancement. I think it's amazing use of the quake. We'll call it quake, quake. I think quake, yeah, quake. quack, quake uh, of that yeast. <laughs> uh, uh, and if um, yeah, if it can produce such a nice, clean lager like beer, then I don't know. Do we call it a lager like? They call it pseudo lager. A lager like yeah, beer. Parker was saying that he would not do, he would not call it a lager. Um, And uh, I I get that impulse, but the truth is um, I, I'm pretty darn neutral about that. I, I, I feel like it's a, it's a, it's an ingredient uh, and I suppose a process, but it's not, it's not a, we're not talking about, uh, you know, theft, cultural theft or appropriation or anything like that. So I I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. This gets back to the old question about what what in, you know what those terms are, uh, what those terms do. Do they tell you what the beer is going to taste like, or do they tell you like how uh, how the beer was made? Exactly. And for yeah, me, so. what's what's more important is letting your consumers know what they're about to what they're about to drink, so they can make informed choices. That's what I'm, I feel too. I mean, I'm especially if it, if it tastes exactly like a lager, you, you know, it's hard not to call it a lager. This is another one of those things I would love to hear from our many listeners who don't uh, email as much as they, uh, they listen. So uh, <laughs> if you have opinions about what to call a fast logger, we, Oh, fast logger. I've just named it. Uh, but if you have opinions about that, do, do, uh, do ping us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. That uh, fast logger is just about the worst name possible. It's like the, all the bad things. <laughs> it's fun how about, you call how about, it logger. It's not a logger. You're highlighting the fast. Nobody cares. How about quike logger? Yeah. And you kind of, uh, it's like about, a pun because it's about, quick, quick, how about, quike. How about Nordic logger? Oh, Nordic logger. All right. All right. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. Done. Named. Make sure you mention me in your beer label. That's right. Send send the proceeds to me on a podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. Send your proceeds to Patrick Emerson. <laughs> Care of. Care of. Podcast. <laughs> but, but make sure the check says Patrick Emerson on it. <laughs> you know, we joke about this a lot. And I, I, I've noticed that nobody ever sends us money. Just, nobody ever sends uh, money. Nobody sends me at me beer. Nobody sends me anything. I only get my beer through your own good graces. So I'm I can't. Yeah, so I can't. Uh, I can't be too mean to you. All right, let's talk about uh, technology advances in beer through time. Uh, and uh, you write the main explosion from 1760 to 1885. That was a long time ago, man. It was, but there was this period of time before 1760, uh, going back into time immemorial. Uh, brewing didn't change all that much. Like you know, if you go before 1760, like the big innovation was hops. Mm-hmm. And if you go before hops, which came around about uh, 1100, <clears throat> let's say 11, 1200, uh, the big innovation was malting. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> right. There's not a whole lot of technological change for He, ba- he basically made some kind of sugary water from grain somehow, and then you waited. Exactly. And, and maybe <laughs> early on you put in uh, sweeter botanicals and later you put in this weedy thing called a hop. And right. that was the big change. There so, you go. So that's, that's brewing up to 1760. And then things really started to change. And the first th- uh, great innovation, which I, I have on this list, which you're also looking at, will show you how, ra- how radically crude things were until 1760. Uh, that was when the thermometer was invented. Wow. 
so people were making beer without a thermometer uh, before 1760. So you know, thousands of years <laughs> figuring out how to brew without a deco- without a thermometer, um, which is kind of amazing. And when you read the old text, they'll say things like, "Put your elbow." In the mash. <laughs> I was just going to make a joke about putting your finger in it. Like, what do you need a thermometer for? It's what a finger is for. That's exactly right. They're oh like, gosh, they, they would say, if you can hold your elbow in the <laughs> in the water for, uh, you know, in the mash for like one, for 10 seconds, then it's the right temperature. It's oh, really is is like your that. skin red and blistering? Oh, the mash <laughs> is too hot. <laughs> totally. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the, we, we talk about, I'm drinking this Czech lager. Well, the Czech lagers are characterized by decoction, which was this mm. crude old mashing method that that they developed because they didn't have a thermometer and they, they realized that if they did this very convoluted system, they would come up with good beer. Um, and then they invented So that was mostly, so decoction, which is basically just like taking it through a bunch of different temperatures, right? Yeah. You start out with cold water. You put cold water in, a, in, a, in, in the, the grain mm-hmm. and then you pull part of it out and boil it and put it back in. And then that raises the temperature of the whole thing a little bit. And then you mm-hmm. pull more of it out, boil it throw it back in that raises it again until uh you know you do that a few times and then you're done and so that was mostly that about beer. about being able to be consistent without the thermometer exactly huh. okay i guess i never quite for- yeah uh, and, and then suddenly a thermometer lo and behold a thermometer can tell you the temperature of water right 1760 that-, that seems really late it doesn't it i know i know it feels Come like on, people like what are we doing <laughs> Yeah, we were technologically quite ignorant for a long time. So yeah. I guess that's why they call them, you know, the Middle and Dark Ages. They just we were not doing, we were not making a lot of progress. Yeah. All right. So 1760, the thermometer comes along, and you can actually get your your uh, your mash to a consistent and and uh, uh, specific temperature. Indeed. And so 20 years later, an interesting uh, tool developed, instrument developed. That I will, I will, I will describe what it what it showed by by talking about. So these are almost all of these things, and let me look down. Yeah, almost all of these things are British, because um, during this great era, because everybody the, knows the Brits basically invented the modern world. Well, this corresponds to the industrial era, right? So this exactly. is the period of of industrialization, and who was way out in front of everybody then? The Brits. Exactly. So they were they were way ahead of everybody. So at during this period of time, the great beer style was porter, and they were making it with this really cheap malt called brown malt. Mm-hmm. A big part of the grist was this brown malt. It was this like rough, smoky stuff, and it would produce this kind of gross beer that they would have to <laughs> age for like a year in a vat before it would turn into something palatable. And uh, they they were they were so they were making this beer for for quite a long time and then they developed this uh, this device which would tell them how much residual sugar was in the uh, solution. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a radical uh, kind of discovery and they they disco- they discovered kind of to their surprise and horror that brown malt was terrible. Very little sugar. They put all this malt in there. They were making. <laughs> they got almost nothing out of it. They got almost nothing out of it, and they realized, "Oh my God, this is not very good for making beer." And, <laughs> and that was the hydrometer, and it and it changed mm. brewing pretty radically because then they realized, "Oh, pale malt, you get a lot of sugar out of pale malt. You don't get a lot of sugar out of this old round brown, terrible brown malt." Uh, so that became this other massive 
watershed and and recipes changed pretty radically uh, after they figured out you, you know we need a lot more pale malt in here to get yeah. more alcohol. I'm not you know I got to tell you I'm not a big fan of the hyd- hydrometer. And the reason I'm not a big fan of the hydrometer is because I'm a terrible home brewer. And every single time I try to do a mash and then I dump my hydrometer in there, it's always this amazing revelation of something entirely different than I expected. Well, we are we are getting better about that. Uh, we, <laughs> so, we, figured, we figured out that the step mashing really helps. So, <laughs> so, the, so the hydrometer for me, you know, I can take it or leave it. I'm, uh, my life would almost be better without a hydrometer. You, you would prefer just to have... Uh, <laughs> A beer that's way lower alcohol than you think it is. Oh, I just prefer to buy it from professionals, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's <laughs> it, it's it's like the instrument of humbling. Yes. <laughs> uh, so these two technologies were mostly. Uh, uh, oh, and there's one more that I'll mention, which is sparging, which was also kind of an interesting thing, which is. Uh-huh super shocking to me that it took them this long to figure it out so, so when you when you make a, a a batch of beer you you put warm water in the grain and create a tea and historically what they would do is they would drain that water out collect collect the wort and then fill it fill the mash tun back up again let it sit there for a while drain that out mm-hmm. usually into the same vat with the, right. the original beer and do this, you know, sometimes many times, like six, seven times in Belgium, they would do this from time to time. Right. To extract as much sugar as you can from that. that right. Yeah. And then it occurred to, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, this started in Scotland. So tip of the hat to the Scots. Ah, yeah. uh, <laughs> instead of instead of this laborious process of filling it up and waiting and then dumping it out, what, what if we just sprinkled water on the top and rinsed all of this sugar out of the, the grain instead, mm-hmm. which is the process of sparging. Yeah. And turns out that's a really good system. <laughs> so uh, they started doing it and then it, you know, it took, it filter, it took a long time to filter out to the rest of the world, but that is nobody does the old, the old system anymore. Um, so. Right. So a thermometer in 1760, hydrometer in 1780, and then sparging in the 1780s, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. <laughs> and, and then. I'm going to throw it. Uh, I'll mention it's this next the 18th one. century, but go, let's go. <laughs> it's true. We are. I'll throw this next one to you because this was this was the an economic engine across the world. It's oh my it gosh, was, yeah. So steam power, 1875 comes along, and um, and breweries originally thought that it would be uh, a useful. What were they? Oh, it was they. They originally just thought it would be useful for uh, heating up tanks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then they then they also realized that they could they could uh, develop machines that would move the liquid around, so they could they could move water up to the top of their towers, mm-hmm. uh, and then they didn't have to you know. So uh, steam powered pumps essentially. Exactly. So yeah. then they realized, oh, this is a power source, and now we can power our entire engine. And what and the 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 amazing result it had in in brewing and then i'm going to throw it to you is um steam power because they could do these other things it wasn't actually directly related to the brewing it allowed them to move things around so much more easily it allowed the breweries to explode in size and that's when that was that was the time that we saw the first gigantic brewery starting to develop is is when when they had steam power and they could build these giant plants and move all their heavy stuff around yeah, and it wasn't just moving the stuff around the plants itself, but it was moving the beer to markets uh, farther away, 
which is the thing I would say about steam power as an economic engine. I mean, there's the power itself, the ability to mechanize and to have this uh, source of power move gears and and do all the things you think about in the industrial revolution. But I think one of the biggest and maybe less appreciated parts of of uh, of um, the invention of steam power is how it fundamentally and radically changed transportation. Uh, and mm-hmm. suddenly, uh, economies, markets became, uh, uh, you know, a hundred times bigger, a thousand times bigger than they were before. Before, if you were a brewery, you would service the places right around your brewery. You could take a few draft horses and, and move some barrels around, but beer is heavy. And yeah. Just, yeah. And you just can't move it very easily. And so most breweries were very local and that's why there were so many, right? very local and and just servicing a local area and then so steam power not only made, allowed the breweries themselves to become big but allowed their distribution networks to become you know so much bigger fundamentally bigger and of course steam power found its way uh into ships and so we you know and just getting away from beer just the broader economic impact was that suddenly shipping became much more expansive and uh, economical uh, obviously, trains uh, move stuff around uh, uh, over land as well. So, yeah, st- steam power really fundamentally changed the world economy. Um, we, you know, you, we, we talk about this in the 21st century how how the world economy is so global. But before steam power, there you know there was barely any any transnational trade at all. <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting. You know, the, the the Brits, of course, were the ones who probably they saw the value in this because they were the ones who were already shipping stuff all over the world. And, and I, I assume that they, they saw the value of, well, we can, uh, we can run, we can run our Porter down the Thames out into the English channel and get it over to the mainland. And then we can start putting on trains now. And yeah, you know, yeah. Before that was all based on sale and, and that's very inefficient in a, you know, economic sense. And uh, so if you look at sort of like the global trade, like the biggest percentage wise, because it was so small prior, but the biggest and the most the massive boom in, in global trade happened right after, right after the invention of steam power and, and the application to big steamships. Um, so, you know, late 1700s and 1800s uh, was this big, massive um, increase in global trade. Yeah, this was what powered the Industrial Revolution, but you saw it in beer for sure, and you saw the first great uh, multinational breweries start to develop, and they all they were all centered in in uh, Great Britain, and they lasted uh, the better part of the next two hundred years. The the biggest breweries in the world were were all British, and they just dominated the world. Mm. Yeah. So oh, there you so- go. So now we're done with 18th, <laughs> sorry, excuse me. They were now we're done with 18th century. Uh, I was about to take a big drink of my beer, but uh, I, I assume you're going to keep talking, but you didn't. So I had to put down my beer. Got to keep talking. Uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> so, so now let's move on to the night. So 1800, uh, what happens next? So this is one of those things that most people don't really appreciate, but it was it was incredibly valuable. I think I think the 19th century was, was as much about uh, – uh, improving the quality of beer as it was about the way the beer was made. And the, mm-hmm. the first great advance was a thing called a temperation. Mm-hmm. And if you're a home brewer and you use a, uh, a wort chiller, mm-hmm. so you, you, you hook up this coil to your garden hose and then you run cold water through it mm-hmm. and, it, uh, in after the boil, and then it, it quickly cools down your, your, uh, your, your, Kettle of beer, yeah, and then you can pitch the the yeast immediately. Until 1800, 
that that's not how it was done. No brewery in the world had ever done done it that way. Mm-hmm. They had boiling hot water, 212 <laughs> degrees, and you know, a fair amount of it, right? So even even small breweries before steam power, you're talking about, you know, a cistern, like a, you know, a, a vat, a, yeah, a fair yeah. amount of it, a fair amount of volume. And so they would put them in these big pans called cool ships and let them just sit there for a long time to uh, vent off all that heat. Mm-hmm. When they finally cooled, then they would throw them in, in the uh, uh, the fermenting, fermenting vessel. And a lot of times, you know, they picked up other stuff when they were sitting in that big old vat uh, and in the cool ship. And so this this discovery of a temperation of running cold water through wort so that you could pitch the yeast faster had a radical trans, you know, a radically transformate transformed the quality of the beer that mm-hmm. people were producing. Um, and the Brits were doing it for decades before anybody else figured it out. Um, and, uh, later on in the century, uh, discovery, microbiology, microbiological discoveries were made that showed that, uh, Lager brewing had a big advantage on this score uh, because it worked with cool temperatures, mm-hmm. but um, but the wort itself still came out hot, and and in and in Germany they were still dumping them into cool ships too. So everybody was dumping them into cool ships. So temperation yeah. was a big ass deal. As a as a home brewer, that was probably the best uh, investment I ever made, actually, because like most home brewers, it just started, and then when you're done to cool it off, you just like you know stick your word outside or stick it in a fridge or something or just leave it out your or stove. just or just we when we first started brewing we'd put it we'd dump it in the carboy and we'd go to sleep and we'd wake up in the morning and we'd pitch the east right exactly and so all that time all kinds of bad things can get into your beer <laughs> yeah <clears throat> until Not the good. yeast can start producing alcohol that kills anything bad that might come into your into your beer and so the beer was awful uh or often awful even no matter how clean you tried to to keep everything, it still was extremely hard to keep uh, bad bacteria out and stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, as a pro tip, as a home brewer, that's one of the, f- the first things I would now, having to do it all over again, I would come up with a wort chiller. Right Absolutely. Away. So the yeah, temperation. So you can see that as a home brewer, you can definitely see that how how much that helps. Yeah, and this happened, of course, before refrigeration, which came later, and a bunch of other stuff. So it was, yeah. it was a big it was a big technique. And then, and by the way. Uh, uh, was it at Samuel Smith? I can't remember where we were when we saw one of these um, wort chiller type devices that was like this big uh, sort of wedge shaped thing where you you poured the you poured the wort on top and it would it would cascade over these fin these copper fins that were chilled from from inside with cold water. I assume uh, does this ring a bell? Uh, yeah, this is the uh, I think you pour the wort over the chiller, right? Is that what you're talking exactly, about? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It can sort of, yeah. It, so it cascades down in the open air, but at least it's getting cool quickly. That's right. That's called the Baudelot chiller. B A U. It's a French word. L O T. Baudelot chiller. And, and, um, yeah, it was definitely an improvement, right? Because you had cold water, and, and uh, uh, but but yeah, you're sp- <laughs> you're still sprinkling it through the environment, and so uh, if your brewery is not absolutely pristine, which of course they didn't understand microbiology there, then right. so they weren't absolutely pristine. Yeah, you still are picking up some stuff, but less, but less, it's better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely better than just having it sit around in a cold ship. But uh, yeah, but I thought that was a, that was really interesting uh, device, and you can see how that sort of the technology was it was advancing in small steps. Totally. 
All right. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip the next one, uh, which is Daniel Wheeler's Drum Roasted Black Patent Malt, which came out in 1817. It changed porters, but it's actually probably not that important because we need to move this thing along and get to machined clear glass in the 1840s. And this is another one I'm gonna ask you about uh, because it was super interesting. So all glass had been hand blown uh, before the 1840s. Uh-huh. And apparently, I don't understand why this is the case, but clear glass is hard to make somehow. Uh, I've never really understood why this is the case. So it was all like like brown and, and, and darker glasses, maybe mm. a, maybe green glass uh, at the lightest. But then in the 1840s, they started figuring out how to how to manufacture. So again, we're in the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Clear 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 glasses like you know like we're drinking out of right now. Right. And once they did that, you could all of a sudden see your beer. Uh, and it turns out a lot of the beer was really bad. It no more terrible. pewter mugs. Huh? <laughs> That's right. So it's like brown and murky and gross looking. Ah, so suddenly there was a premium on good looking beer. That's right, and there were there happened to be two beers in the world that were really good looking. Ooh, one was I know one. Okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> Thank God you got that right. <laughs> After like 17 years. You I wasn't 100% it. sure, by the way. <laughs> That's, you got it. Like and, raising my hand in front of class. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pilsner was the one that it really, it really launched it. But Pilsner got, um, Pilsner was, was a development that was, that was stolen basically from the light kilning uh, techniques that came from where the UK, uh, where they were making pale ales. So they they figured out how to kiln malts that were pale, um, and then they made pilsners out of them. So pale malt, pale ales, and pilsners were the two uh, beers from that era that were people could see them and they're like, oh my god, these are gorgeous beers. And then all of a sudden they wanted to drink those beers. We drink with our eyes, right? So we drink with our eyes. Here we go. Okay, that's all. Go. No, I was just going to say, not only um, was the beer gross because it had gross stuff in it but basically it was all pretty dark prior to then i mean i know pilsner existed but but the sort of as kind of a common notion of beer being being light colored that's when it started well it was it was a happy coincidence because pilsner the first pilsner was brewed in 1842 so it just Ah. you know if if it had been brewed a hundred years earlier before clear glass was was uh, available i don't i don't know that pilsners would have taken off i mean i think that there are some certainly some flavor components in pilsners that are unique and and don't rely on the color uh, and the beauty of them. But um, but I think it was we drink with our eyes. You know the whole hazy IPA thing is purely a visual thing. Um, there are so many examples of, of beers yeah. that are popular purely because of the way they look. So this was a, a, yeah. a great example. And I assume that this is a thing in in in, in economies. You have these kinds of I, I don't know what, what this is akin to, but um, it strikes me that, I mean, this is barely a beer technology, you know, the, 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 the clear glass. Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 there are lots of parallels, I think, but the, the one that, I don't know why it pops into my head, but uh, one of the things that um, you associate with Steve Jobs and Apple is how he was fanatical about many things. But one of the things he was fanatical about was the simple packaging that his stuff came in. Right. And so now this like these really super fancy elaborate boxes and how you sort of unbox your iPhone or whatever it is uh, uh, is just uh, 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 taken for granted. But all of it sort of evokes value uh, to a consumer. And so I suppose when you've got 
the difference between having a pewter mug and a clear glass is that now you have to sort of signal the quality of your good in a, in a different way or in, a, in another way. And so now that becomes, you becomes a premium on figuring out how to brew a, a beer that looks good, that's clear, that's, you know, that's attractive to a consumer. Right. Yeah. We are visual beings. The way things look are so important. I thought, I forgot about the packaging thing. I thought you were just going to talk about how Jobs was fanatical about the way the, the iPhone looked. Like he, he was. Yeah. Know, making sure like the screws, you can't see the screws and all kinds <laughs> right. of things. So there's that too. But I was thinking sort of one step beyond was even the most, like none of the companies at that point give it, gave a rat's ass about uh, what kind of box it came in. Like nobody cared about that. It was the, it was the, it was the phone itself that was supposed to matter, but he understood that it all matters. Like everything right. is a signal of quality. Everything is a signal to a consumer uh, um, of the quality of your product. And so, um, yeah, with a clear glass, that's just another signal. You need to have sort of a good looking beer in order to signal that to your consumer. <clears throat> totally. And, and if we jump over to the United States at the same time, um, all the, all the, the, the great wave of German brewers who came over and launched really turned America into a beer drinking country, uh, in, in, in this period from the 1840s to the 1880s, mm-hmm. uh, they were all Munich guys, like, you know, Bavarian guys, and they were making dark lagers. And then Pilsners came along and they had to figure out how to make Pilsners. Uh, and they couldn't do it with American malt. It was, it was too chunky. It, it was, it was highly pro it had a big, these big protein, uh, molecules and they mm-hmm. would float like chunks in the glass and they looked terrible. If you had, <laughs> if you could see through the, the, you know, if it wasn't <laughs> brown beer, you couldn't see it so well, but these right. really clear beers, they look terrible. And so that's why uh, they started using corn and uh, rice in the beer. It was to cut down the, the quantity of, of uh, lousy American pro- malt. <laughs> yeah. Protein that was in the, you know, you, you take a little bit of that protein out, it, it mm-hmm. drops out of suspension and all of a sudden it's brilliant and beautiful. Right. And to this day, we still use those in our domestic lagers and it's, and it has, it goes all the way back to the way the beer looked. It looked yeah. terrible. Even though it no, no longer has any purpose in that right. no longer <laughs> has the original purpose. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, totally. So then microbiology comes along. Yeah. And so 1857 is a year that, uh, there's a few years in, in brewing technology that just stick in my brain. And 1857 is ginormous. It's when Louis Pasteur uh, released his study on yeast. Microscopes came along at some point. I don't know. <laughs> so before 1857. And, uh, and he looked into them and he said, ah, yeast is alive. And it's, it's this, it's, it's these little cells. And uh, this is the mechanism that causes uh, beer to ferment and he described the whole process of fermentation and what he really described was he looked in there and he saw on his plate that not only were there saccharomyces yeast the yeast cells but there were all these other creatures in there you know mm. there was and 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 uh bacterium and all these other things and wild yeasts and stuff and he realized oh my god it's a it's a stew in in, in a lot of beer uh and what he noticed was when he looked through the microscope at lager beers, which were made in these cooler environments where those mm-hmm. other uh, microorganisms had a harder time flourishing, he saw it was way better. And mm-hmm. so he said, so in eight, remember back to the glass thing, 1842, uh, Pilsner is released. It's a lager. 1857, he, he points out, if you lager your beer, uh, it will have a lot of these other spoilage 
uh, a lot fewer of these spoilage organisms in the beer, mm-hmm. and you'll it'll be a lot easier to make it, and you won't have a lot of the troubles you normally have. That combined with the popularity of Pilsner, combined with the ability to see the beer, basically uh, turned the whole world, which you know ninety nine percent of the beer made in the world up until that point was ales. Mm-hmm. You know, by by the end of World War Two, ninety nine percent of the beers made in the world are lagers, and it's yeah. all it all goes back to this kind of series of events that that happens. Um, and and it's really Pasteur who says, if you want clean beer, you should lager it. You should not screw around with ales; it's too dangerous, and you end up with all this crap in it. Wow. Yeah. And so, uh, next step is then uh, more industrial revolution refrigeration. Right. So we have refrigeration, which goes hand in glove with Pasteur's discovery. Uh, and then uh, that's in the 1870s. And in 1883, uh, there's a lot of study on yeast once Pasteur looks at it through a microscope. Uh, Emil Hansen uh, at Carlsberg uh, creates the first single strain uh, of lager yeast. So he's the one who he before that time you just repitch stuff and right. you got you got what you got he's the guy who goes into a lab finds one strain of yeast isolates it and starts reproducing it uh plating it repri- re, you know repitching it so that it's right. a pure consistent strain um if you look in old old books you'll see uh, uh carl bergensis uh, named as the uh, logger strain that he uh, he isolated uh-huh. <laughs> kind of gone away from that that sort of was 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 the equivalent of logger yeast it was carl bergensis uh-huh. um, <laughs> we've gotten away from that but uh to carlberg's Carlsberg's great advantage, uh, they made this publicly available. They gave it to anybody who wanted it. And so it spread like wildfire. Wow. So you have this kind of series of, of events. No, that would not happen today. Yeah. <laughs> you have this series of events from 1840s uh, uh, through 1883 where the, just everything was racing towards the adoption of lager yeast. Um, and, it, and it concluded there with uh, with with you know being able to buy laboratory cultures for the first time and pitch those and not have to worry about anything and you and you could put them in your refrigerated cold cases and and it was you know you put them on your uh, uh you know your, your rail tracks and ship them out and and mm-hmm. and, and now we're now eight by you know by the late 19th century we have relatively modern beer being made across the world and relatively consistent yeah, beer, exactly. Right. So uh, I, I mean, yeah. reading reading through the years here, uh, you started figuring out how to make beer better, doing a better job making the beer. Try to uh, figure it out uh, how to. Well, you skipped over the black patent malt, but but we're getting better at malting as well, and so the ingredients right. were getting better. And then uh, uh, and then we finally figured out exactly what was going on in the beer, and so by isolating the yeast, now you can create a much more consistent. Uh, fermentation process and um, so yeah so uh, the beer not only changes itself going from dark ales to to light lagers um, uh, but the the consistency and quality of the beer is increased dramatically and I think that there's a big commercial component of this too because the breweries that were able to produce clean beer that would last you know you buy a bottle and it doesn't taste putrid when you crack it open mm-hmm. three or four weeks later um, you know they have a, they have a huge advantage in the marketplace so. yeah good point and now that the market is growing because of steam power and you can send your beer everywhere and you can be a much bigger brewery 
right. uh, then there's a huge advantage to, to being the, the, the better brewer, having better, more consistent, cleaner beer. Totally. <clears throat> yeah. So there's, you know, a, a real incentive to, um, uh, to have that consistent quality. Well, that's fascinating. And now I have my uh, pseudo lager that has another new uh, uh, technological advantage, natural one, however. Right. And, the Nordic East. and we and we just heard last week about all these other innovations, which, um, you know, the 20th century was all described by mechanical uh, uh, changes, the uh, the mash filter and, uh, you know, I, I suppose some biological things, additives and, and various things you could you could put in in beer but um mm -hmm. but this but crispr uh and similar technologies i think create the opportunity for a, a second micro biological revolution that we're about to potentially see which could be super fascinating yeah one that's entirely different modern and and high tech <laughs> but you could yeah. you could tell the new story i guess from crick and watson discovering dna all the way up to now where you can edit edit genes and uh, yeah yeah crazy stuff crazy stuff yeah that's right because if you if you even just follow the story of yeast and beer um it starts with pasteur it goes to hansen and then it goes to uh the discovery of different kinds of yeasts so uh, ale yeast lager yeast but also wild yeasts which um brettanomyces was discovered sometime around the turn of the the 20th century mm -hmm. and that basically eliminated its presence in beer once people r recognized what it was and where it came from um yeah it just vanished from the face of the earth. And it was a really common component in many ale strains up until mm -hmm. that point. So, wow. yeah. It's oh, cool. interesting stuff. Well, that was an interesting discussion. Thank you very much for taking us through the early technological advantages that changed beer forever. Indeed. <laughs> All right. We should probably jump ahead to the uh, mailbag. And uh, we have two entries. The first one is from John Hubble from Washington, D.C. I believe John, we've uh, had mail from before. Uh, he writes, hi guys, before your latest installment of dull beer styles of the old world, you mentioned craft <laughs> craft brewers making seltzer. That uh, was our Col that was he this came after our Kolsch, our genius Kolsch episode. <laughs> uh, I, I was ignoring it uh, studiously. I uh, yes. thought you might be interested that brewers at DC Brow in Washington, DC recently indicated that seltzer was about 20% of their sales last year. Oh my gosh. You might also enjoy the nugget that sales of their flagship corruption IPA <laughs> increased starting in 2017. Oh, that is good. Yep. It's uh, it's a bro it's a bold new world. And I'll tell you what, John, I am never going to forsake Kolsch, so get used to it. <laughs> Uh, Kolsch is fantastic, by the way. I uh, love my dull beer styles. They're they're amazing. Yeah, especially you're in Washington D.C., John. It's hot. It's humid. A Kolsch is perfect. Come on, perfect. Well, he might say, uh, with some reason, that a that a seltzer is good too. But let's oh, not go there. No, he won't say that. Yeah, that's <laughs> terrible. I see uh, how you jumped on that first one because I have the second one, which is like three pages long. Well, you can edit. I'll have to edit. So uh, Kyle Novice, whom we have called, Kyle is a longtime uh, commenter, and he always has really good comments. Uh, we've always called him Navis. Sorry, Kyle. <laughs> we mispronouncing your name forever. Uh, it's Novice. Uh, he's from Alameda, California. He's bounced around, uh, but he's currently living in Alameda. And he has uh, something for you. 
which uh, I will try to edit. So he he says that um, he starts out by talking about how uh, the hospitality industry we have all this unemployment and yet the hospitality industry says they're having a hard time finding uh, people to hire and quotes a source which I will now read. Um, he's uh, quoting from Kyle quoting from this the source he sent, higher wages are part of inflation. The Fed is looking for higher wages, Macmillan said. They're looking for a little inflation. Wages get pushed into corks and barrels and everything else that goes into making wine. It becomes an inflationary cycle where everybody pays more for the goods and for more for goods and services. The expectation from the Fed is that we'll get real wage growth for the people at the bottom who haven't had it for so long. Kyle continues. It seems like there's got to be some pretty clear tension that's going to emerge here for breweries, given how many have struggled a lot during COVID. To meet demand, they're going to need to hire workers, but low supply of workers means they can demand higher wages or better working conditions. Mm -hmm. So what do you think brewery workers should be asking for or demanding, especially given uh, your sympathy for labor? I think my sympathy for labor is probably greater than yours, but you know more about economics. Uh, And Well, I'm an old labor guy, man. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and the and, and the brewery owners, uh, you've given a platform in your COVID, uh, COVID diaries, pushing up wages uh, or benefits to attract workers. So yeah, let me you you why don't you take that from the economics? Why side? that's a meal. Uh, it okay, is so a meal. Yeah, I think Kyle, Kyle gave us the uh, the high heat right over the plate. Uh, okay, so I think there's three things I'll try to unpack. So the first one is his quote about uh, macroeconomics and inflation. So basically. When there is a real inflationary episode, uh, or when uh, like uh, central bankers get worried about uh, inflation becoming a problem, it's when it gets uh, cooked into the 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 wage cycle. In other words, because prices are rising, firms raise wages uh, to compensate, and those rage, uh, uh, rising wages, of course, mean that prices have to rise because that increased costs for producers. And so it's that kind of cycle that worries central bankers because once that sort of gets baked in, then that can get out of control. You keep raising wages, prices keep having to go up, you keep raising wages more to compensate and so on and so forth. And that's kind of what the that sort of in, runaway inflation can, uh, what can lead to runaway inflation and what people worry about. On the other hand, uh, a lot of people ask, well, why why is it that the Fed wants inflation? Why, why should we want inflation at all? It seems best if we have zero inflation. And the reason we like a little bit of inflation, usually 2% is the target, even if they won't say it. But basically, we think of, we think of about 2% inflation as a target. And that's because it creates this nice, easy expectation. Deflation is bad because if I invest in something now and, and prices go down in the future, well, then I worry about getting my return on my investment. And so it can really have a contracting effect. And people don't want to invest. People are unsure about what the future is going to look like when there's deflation. Uh, so a little bit of inflation is nice. I hope I've explained that well enough, but that's kind of why they want just a little bit. It's very clear now when I when I make my investments today, I think that yes, prices are going to go up a little bit, but not so much that it's going to de- uh, devalue my inflation in the future, but I am expecting this sort of process to continue. <clears throat> so yes, wages are part of that cycle, but uh, uh, central bankers worry when it becomes too big a part of that cycle. All right, so that's step one. Step two is what's going on right now. What's going on? Oh, right that now was is, only step one. Good God, good God, man, that was very clear. But I, I thought that was the whole steps. But I'll carry on. Well, step the other stuff is simple. The, the step two is the fact that there's um, there's a pandemic going on, and so people are hesitant to jump right back into hospitality work, right? right. 
So that's pretty clear. And so you have to give what we call a compensating wage differential. You have to pay people for the risk they're taking. And that's basically what's going on. You have to raise wages in order to get entice people back into the mar- into the workforce. And yes, so that's exactly the tension that's going on right now. We're spending a lot of money on this big recovery package. I think it's a good idea, but people are worried that uh, wages are going to get bid up very quickly. And when they do, that could start a whole new inflationary episode. And you make a good point. Brewers, brew pubs, places that uh, are very sensitive to the cost of production and uh, uh if they have to spend a lot more on their labor force, that's going to have to translate into higher prices of the final product. Uh, and so, yes, I think that's, I mean, I don't know what else to say, except that's sort of the natural uh, occurrence right now until we can get over the hump of COVID. So that's another reason why everyone should get vaccinated because as soon as we can get past that point, then the risk factor goes down. You don't have to increase wages as much, uh, which is not a negative, it's not an anti-labor thing. Uh, because remember, if we push up all those wages so quickly, then the prices are just going to go up to compensate. And so people in real terms aren't going to be much better off. So it's better off if we can all get vaccinated. They won't have to pay a huge risk premium. Uh, people might get compensated a little bit better, but then we get back to sort of what's more normal in a full employment where lots of people want to work and can find work. Right now, it's lots of people who are choosing not to work uh, at the uh, given the current environment. <sighs> Good man. That, make, that was that really well done. <laughs> it does make sense. And I'll just add uh, one, one, one more wrinkle here is the, the financial uh, reporting on breweries tends to point to barrels rather than dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, many of the breweries, even the ones that managed to keep their, their uh, barrelage up, uh, watch their revenue collapse because everybody was buying beer at grocery stores uh, at retail. Uh, right. And that was stuff that was going through three tiers. So the revenue that was heading back to the brewery was way vastly reduced. In fact, I was not too long ago out uh, in Astoria, Oregon, where I toured the new facility at uh, uh, Fort George. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Chris Nemloel out there we were touring around and he was proud to say that they had managed to keep their volume up uh, in 2020, basically flat. They managed to keep it flat. He was super proud. And I said, that's fantastic. Congratulations. How was your revenue? And he groaned. He said, oh, our revenues just collapsed. It was terrible. Mm. So they, they were selling as much beer. They were making a lot less money. Yeah. And that puts a big squeeze. I, I am a huge labor guy. I was a, in a union for 20, uh, for 15 years and you know, I'm, I'm all for labor, but but I realize the pinch that brewers are in right now. Um, that you know, keeping the keeping the the mash tons going is great, but um, but the the economics for smaller breweries, which you know, the thing that you've always pointed out is they don't have economies of scale. So right. um, it's just probably a break even <laughs> at a certain point. You know, you're just you're trying to keep people employed, but you're not making any money. Yeah, it is going to be an interesting artifact potentially of this pandemic, which is right now when the economy is starting to heating up, but we're not quite clear of the pandemic, that that might lead to a lasting inflation in wages. And that could give us a little sort of inflationary bump um, over the short term, which is going to freak out people, of course, if inflation starts getting high. But it might just be sort of this temporary bump that's happening because of this uh, sort of voluntary um, retreat from the labor market of a lot of uh, potential workers. So we'll see. Yeah, and people, there will be some confusion in the marketplace. I'm guessing between whether that is a temporary bump or an overheated market, which the Fed would yep. want to interact with. So yep. yeah, 
Yeah, we'll see. But but the 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 Fed has a ton of runway right now because we have interest rates so low. It's very easy to get a handle on on inflation if it starts getting out of hand. So I'm not worried about that at all. <clears throat> well, very good. Look at us yeah. getting a, a little e- beeronomics in there. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, then we should probably end this because uh, all our listeners are gone now. <laughs> no way. They wait for that. They hunger. They think, oh, please mention deflationary cycles. Please. <laughs> oh, you want to talk about Japan for now? Okay. Uh, <laughs> a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics. Do indeed. All right. I have my pseudo lager with I my have... Nordic yeast, so my Nordic lager in my hand. I have no bohemian pilsner but i have an empty glass where it used to be from east brother <laughs> you lush yeah mine's from narrows brewing in tacoma washington and uh, good job that's it's a nice beer all right excellent cheers jeff cheers patrick <laughs> next time we'll do this together <laughs>